0: Really be Here recently, I've realized in the world that people are really hungry for a God. However, they're not hungry for the real God, instead they're hungry for some false God that will give them two things. And these two principal things are this. One, people want a God who will come along and give them pity. Someone who will look at them and say, you know, life really is unfair. It wasn't fair that you were born under those circumstances or you had that bad day or you were wronged or you suffered under this great evil. It was all unfair. It was all very bad. Yes, indeed, you are sad. I'm here to come and give you a hug and open up all the doors so you do not have to overcome anything. Second to that, people want a God who is vengeful and wrathful, who will come along and say, you do not have to think for yourself. You do not have to fight your own battles. I will smite your enemies off the earth, and all you have to do is agree with me and As long as you agree with me, you do whatever I tell you, put on what I tell you, take off what I tell you, you will be virtuous just because you agree with me, and again, you will not have to think for yourself, you will have to fight no battles, you will have to overcome nothing, and my wrath will satisfy whatever you want." These principally are the two things that I see people being very hungry for in our world. And neither of them, or even when you weave the two together, they're not really what God actually is. They're not who God's character is revealed to be, and they're certainly not the image that we should be focusing on. And as we come into Holy Week, I want us to begin our messages by going to John chapter 12, verse 27, where Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause I came unto this hour. And what we find going on in this verse is Jesus looks around the world and he says, which again, it's Jesus. He sees the world clearer than we do. He understands the stakes of everything. He sees that the extremity of the fall goes all the way up into heaven. The heavens and the earth all have to be melted away there on the day of judgment. Whether you look in 2 Peter 3 and you see the earth and heavens dissolve like molten elements, or you look in Revelation 20 when God sits on the judgment seat and they all flee. The state and extremity of evil is enormous. So much so that Scripture looks at us and says, Hey, if the light in you is darkness, how great then is that darkness? You know, Jesus tells people there is evil that is so vile, so extreme, that it's able to convince you that it is the light. And my, my, is it terrible. But then the New Testament also reminds us, and Paul's words there in Romans eight eighteen say, The current sufferings of this present age, you know, the darkness, the evil around us, it is not even worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. In other words, yes, there is terrible, miserable, sad, evil, wretched, pathetic stuff all around you. But no matter how extreme it is, it is not even comparable to the real goodness of God. And when we put that in the context of everything around us, which is fallen, it is broken, And people really want someone to come along and say, look, it's bad. Here's your hug. You don't have to to persevere. God looks at us and says, no, you were made to overcome. God has given us an opportunity where we must choose who we will be. God did not look at the great cataclysmic fall of everything. And again, even the angels, as 2 Peter reminds us, the angels held there in the nether gloom beneath all worlds in chains waiting for their hour of judgment. God sees it all, but he did not want pity himself. He did not come along and say, well, you know, if I just leave this cup there, you know, the world will sort itself out. No, God looked at the death and the suffering. And although he hates death and suffering, he was not afraid of it. He was not deterred by it and not distracted by it. He came for the hour to have victory over it. And going back to John 12, 27, I love how this is translated. And this is the King James translation, which I actually think does the best justice to this text. It says, now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. It's beautiful. And in that verse, Jesus exemplifies the full index of Philippians 4, 8. Which reads, finally, brothers and sisters, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are, or let me restart that. I started on the second line there. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, that is beautiful, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, meditate on these things. Think on them. Look at them. The character of Christ embodies these irrevocable virtues. And this is why Christ came. This is why he came to us fully God, fully man. The path that he walked, the path of life, the way of life, it is one which is irrevocable. And we have to realize Jesus, he was tempted by the devil and tempted to serve evil rather than good. And he expressed in the garden the anxious lament of a heart burdened with suffering. Jesus was fully God, fully man. And breaking down those two things really quickly, our modern world has come to the sort of methodology of thinking, which is fa- flawed, very faulty, very flawed, that you're only tempted if you feel like you're tempted. You're only deceived if you feel like you're deceived. That is not the case. Um, Jesus was tempted. The devil comes to him and says, hey, if you serve me, I will give you all this stuff. And Jesus says, no, first of all, no, you don't actually own all that stuff, but no. To be tempted, you don't actually have to agree with the tempter. You don't even have to feel like you're, you're being tempted to be tempted. That's just something important to, to understand. And when Jesus is there in the garden, him feeling that anxious lament and feeling the, the human side of things, looking at death, that does not mean that Jesus is sinning there in the garden. A lot of times in our own lives, we wonder, you know, have I failed if I don't have the right emotions going into something? God did make the emotions, but emotions do not determine reality. What God wants to see is us, even in our moments where we do feel a little uncertain, we say, you know what? I'm not certain about what tomorrow is really going to look like, but I know that you have the ultimate victory. Therefore, I'm going to step into the dark valley. And if I, if I perish, I perish. I'm moving forwards. You are the good, the true, and the beautiful. And I'm going to hold fast with that. So Jesus, he chose to pay the price and he understood the price. He chose to pay it out of love. So what then do we do in response? Jesus is consistently the way, the truth, and the life. In our modern world, we've spent a lot of time talking about Jesus being love, God being love, and that's, that's absolutely important. That is fundamental to the gospel. That is a, a beam which undergirds it all that must be taught. But we cannot forget to teach that Jesus is also the way, the truth, and the life, and particularly that second item there, truth. Jesus' name is truth. He is the faithful and true one. We should never forget these things. And whenever we look at the Gospels, and this is something which I only had eyes open to here in the last few years, is that all throughout the Gospels, the truth of God is not built on stories or narratives. It is built on objective truth, material truth that you can walk out and feel and touch and see that can be verified. Whether you look at Jesus being born, the shepherds being told, you'll go over there and find a child. You look there with even Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zachariah is told, hey, in nine months, your wife, who's barren in her old age, she's going to have a child. Go wait and see. Even at the cross, when Jesus is put in a tomb, there's a real tomb you can walk over and see. And then three days later, there is a real open tomb that you can walk over and see that stone rolled away. And even when doubting Thomas is there, Jesus holds up his hand and says, you know, how wonderful it will be for those who believe without being able to touch this hole. But you know what? At the same time, there's still a hole in a hand. There is a bleeding hand. There is a scar. There is a wound. You can reach out and see it, and you can touch it. It is really there. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus always is telling people, I'm not here just to thank for you, to open up all the doors so you don't have to, to do anything. I am here to call you to virtue so that your will, which was made sufficient to stand, though free to fall, ability of, of sovereignty to, to be sovereign on its own, it if it will conform itself to me, Goodness will come. As we come into our Palm Sunday message, Jesus tells his disciples to go out and find a cult. They are challenged to go out into the world and see if the truth of Jesus is in fact reliable. This is not just a philosophical teaching or some moral principle which is disconnected from the world. No, these instructions to gather the young donkey are centered around a material reality. And God wants his children to step out into the world and use their free will to discover how reliable he is. God wants us to be able to trust him, to have assurance that what he says is true. So let's have a quick prayer. And thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. And we'll read Mark 11, 1-11, and we'll talk about it just a little bit. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to enjoy and be blessed by your scripture. I pray that our hearts and minds could be opened up to receive your goodness, your truth, and your beauty. As we come to examine those hearts and minds which saw you there on Palm Sunday, let us have nobility in our hearts as we do what is good and true. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So Mark 11 begins by saying, When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said and allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and... Threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread their leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. When those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right, so what we find here, again, built into the Palm Sunday scripture, that triumphal entry, is truth, material truth. Like You can walk in the teachings of Jesus, and it matches the world around you. It's not just a narrative. It's not just a creed, and it's certainly not just a perspective. It is truth, verifiable truth. And the character of God, it is both good and reliable, even though it is dangerous and sovereign in its own time. We have to understand that our will, man's will, is quite fickle, being swayed by all manner of vices and desires. And as we look at the beginning of Holy Week, I want us to ponder the events from the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday to the crucifixion of Good Friday. Because when we look at those events, we see that a change happens. There are many who are singing hosannas and waving palm branches when Jesus enters Jerusalem, Yet many of those same people will be crying out, crucify him within a week's time. And you might wonder, what happened within that week's time? What changed? Was Jesus like a modern politician who might say one thing when running for office, but then do something entirely different once they obtain that power? No. The Christ did not undergo such a change. And Jesus himself had not had some sort of bizarre alteration in his appearance and his position. And he, he didn't come along and say, you know, that which I told you was good is now different, all this stuff. He, he doesn't play those games. What did happen was that the people who were in Jerusalem had a change in their hearts. We all understand that different moments in time bring out different parts of our character. We all have different temperaments and personalities, and some of us are entertained by things that bore others. Some of us are easily frustrated by things that others can endure without breaking a sweat. We all know that as people, we are a little bit different from one another. And even as individuals, we realize that we can all behave differently depending on the different moments in which we dwell. You know, we might have a good day, we might have a bad day. I, as a preacher, might have a good sermon, might have a bad sermon. We have days that are a little bit like that. But each of us are still one individual, and we have a single soul that is attached to all of our thoughts and actions. And when we weigh all of this against the people who were in Jerusalem, we might wonder, who really were those people? Were they the people who were better represented by their interest in waving palm branches? Or are they people who were better represented by their declarations of crucify him? We really hope that, of course, the the mercy of God sees them more in the repentant state. Um, But we really don't know. It's difficult for many of us to realize that the same people who were so reverent in one moment would be monsters in the next. But yet we must understand this is true. Scripture does not lie to us about our own depravity. It challenges us to accept Christ that we may overcome it. John, 1 John, the first epistle of John, chapter 5, verse 4, encourages us in saying, For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. If we want to have goodness for our our children, goodness for the world around us, then we have to, by necessity, build on the teachings, the principles, and the truth of Christ. If we want to maintain the path of goodness, to endure the way of life, then it has to be centered around God. And I use the word endure the way of life very deliberately because if you're actually doing that which is good and true, it is going to accelerate the anger of hell around you. Joshua twenty four fifteen famously says, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. For as me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. You know, we look at Joshua there. He doesn't give people a middle ground. He doesn't say you can serve the Lord like my house does or You can serve those over there on the other side of the flood, or maybe you can do nothing in your home. There is no middle ground here. We really have to understand that. For a long time, we've convinced ourselves that there is this middle ground, but there's there's really not. The God-shaped hole is real. Evil will fill the gap. And evil does not require the same sort of commitment that does the way of life. It doesn't require that sort of perseverance. It often comes to people and says, I'll give you everything for nothing in return. And of course, that's a lie because the way of death is filled with deceit. But there really are only two ways, the way of life and the way of death. All of life around us right now is in a fallen era as we live in the valley of the shadow of death. I have come to realize the valley of the shadow of death extends all the way from the gates of Eden to the judgment seat. But you know what? We don't actually have to live in death. We must choose whom we will serve. Will we be those who cry Hosanna before the Master of all creation, or will we be those who cry, crucify Him? Perhaps we might be those who just passively go along with the crowd and do whatever is popular at the time, but that miserable attitude always leads to death, and it often does it in a way that's not obvious. We're not asked to give account for those souls who appeared to love Jesus sincerely at the start of Holy Week, but then rejected Him so absolutely by the end, and By the grace of God, we're not asked to give account for another soul, but we will have to give account for our own. And when we yoke ourselves to the master of all creation, when we willfully conform our sovereign will to our maker, we will find more liberty, more wisdom, and more sanity than we could ever afford on our own. There is no lukewarm pathway where one cannot choose. For the cosmic principalities, they have a wanton desire to destroy. We are born in a state of disrepair under the curse of sin and death. However, we do not have to remain in that condition. 2 Peter 3.17 warns us, saying, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. We must embrace Christ and his irrevocable love. This is our calling. This is our challenge. If we want to live holy lives where we can think clearly and see life as God wants us to see it, then we have to have that centered around Christ. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together, shall we? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. Now on that, God love you, and have a blessed day.